Word of God. These are going to be the most important words you're going to hear me say today. From 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with this same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body, hear me, is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For it is for this reason that the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and be sober-minded that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Please be seated. When I met Ryan yesterday, I thought he said Wyatt, uh, partially because the stereo was playing so loud behind him. I finally had to have him spell the name Riot, R-I-O-T. Seven years old, great little boy. So why are we here? My sermon title today is Living as Stewards of God's Grace. You're going to notice I'm going to focus on part of this passage. And I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2 to set the stage. I call this first point, you are done with sin, so live in freedom. Brothers and sisters, I shouldn't have to tell you this again, but let's remind ourselves. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Why do we have to arm ourselves? Well, we're in a battle, so we certainly have to arm ourselves with that attitude. But this phrase, done with sin, is a very interesting phrase. 
it says it's an act of one suffering which stopped or finished sin. Do you notice how when we talk about Jesus' resurrection, we say he, he gained victory over sin and death? But we as humans tend to focus a lot more on that death part because we know that's coming. But that sin part is even more important. You need to arm yourself with the same attitude as of Christ. You see, that one death separated us forever from a life of sin. Verse 2 gives us the result. They do not live their earthly lives for evil desires, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. This means you are free. You are free to live in alignment with God's will. Sin is a breeder of slavery and oppression. God is at liberty. God gives you liberty to live for him. You see, you have two wills, not Williams, but two wills that are at war. The human will and God's will. God has set us free to leave the one and go with his will. I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 7. He says in verse 7, the end of all things are near. What brought Peter to this conclusion? Well, let's review. Emperor Nero was on the throne, and to say he was bizarre and his behavior was bizarre would be an understatement. There was persecution looming on the horizon. Peter himself was faced with the very low likelihood that he would survive much longer and, in fact, did not. And Peter rightly concluded that the end was near. He knew that Jesus was going to come back and bring an end to the world and everything in it. And he knew that God's calendar would involve very soon the return of Jesus Christ. You say, very soon? A long time ago. This same Peter said, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Do not doubt his coming. You know, there are two mistakes about the second coming of Jesus Christ that people make. The first one, I've been in this camp, is to be pretty sure we've got it all figured out. Timetables, dates. No, we don't. We don't. There's another more dangerous mistake, my friends. And that is, we tend to act and we tend to forget that Jesus is coming again. We tend to live our lives as if he's not coming. Christ spoke of his return very often, especially after he revealed his death, and it was never in vague or uncertain terms. Those first century believers frequently preached and mentioned his return in their preachings and writings. My friends, you don't know when he's coming back, neither do I, and I don't know all the details. I suspect, nor do you. We do know this. Jesus 
is coming again. He will return in power and glory. Every eye will see him. Every knee will bow. We don't know when he's going to return, but we do know that he will. So we need to be ready. Oh, wait. How do we be ready? And the coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned in the New Testament is almost always followed by an imperative. And that imperative is almost always exhortation to godliness and holy living. Christ's return prepares us and prompts us to be ready. And that readiness is what's described here. A steward of grace. What is a steward? Well, it's a very old term. It even is royal. There are royal stewards. They became regents. They ruled in the king's stead. We often think of stewardship as an economic basis. We often say that we are stewards of the money that God's given to us, the resources that he's given to us. That is certainly part of it. Stewards utilize and manage resources in place of and with the authority of the master. So we are called to be stewards of grace. So my friends, I see four imperatives, four commands on this stewardship life. The first one is at the last part of verse 7. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. If I told you that the end of the world is this afternoon and you believed me, I would suspect today would be a little different for you. And in one sense, that is true for any of us. The end of the world, our world, could be today. But Peter responds in a different way. He says, don't be panicked. Stay clear-minded and self-controlled. Don't be filled with anxiety. Don't quit your job. Peter's telling us that we need to remain clear-minded, meaning we have to think and evaluate situations maturely and in the wisdom of God. There's an interesting phrase here. It is sober. He says we need to remain sober. Well, I'm usually sober. Aren't you? Maybe. How about this one? Keep a clear head and don't get drunk on money, possessions, your career, or anything else that blocks you from praying. Hmm. That starts to hurt a little bit. Interesting, he ties it to prayer. You need to stay clear-minded and sober so that you can pray, so that your prayers will be effective, and that they'll be focused appropriately. My friends, don't answer me. But I can tell you I struggle, and I wonder if you struggle, with the deep and intimate prayer life with God. It could be that you lack and I lack clear thinking and sobriety. 
My friends, if you come to a complete and clear understanding of how dependent you and I are on God, how we can do nothing without Him, we will seek His face a lot more. If we understand that we in the church are engaged in a battle, remember at the very beginning it said, arm yourselves. We're engaged in a battle for souls. And the stakes are higher than any of us might ever think. We would pray with greater focus. If I could really see the majority, the vast majority of people that are headed for judgment, I would pray a lot more about my coworkers. If we really believe that the end is near, that'll impel us to pray. So stay focused. Stay clear-minded so you can pray. He gives us a second command. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. You notice that phrase, above all? It's there for a reason. It is the premier Christian virtue. It is the priority and preeminence of love as a Christian virtue. It should characterize us as Christians. 1 Corinthians 13, you, you might be a Christian with a thorough knowledge of the Word and theology, a sparkling church attendance record and a big receipt for all the giving you've made to the church and to the poor. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. This word translated deeply is a strenuous, intense love. It takes work. It does not come naturally to us. That's why we're commanded to it. I know it takes worth because the proof is in this very last part. It covers a multitude of sins. Now, hear me. Your love doesn't forgive someone else's sins nor your own. It's not what it means. That means that this love stretches and covers a multitude of hurts, slights, wounds, sins. This love, which I have received from Jesus, covers all of this. I can't hold a grudge against Ross because Jesus holds none of my sins against me. When we really love each other, we're able to forgive each other more rapidly when issues arise. When love abounds in a fellowship of believers, many small offenses and many large ones are forgotten, forgiven, and in the past. My friends, when love is absent, the opposite occurs. We have mistrust, bitterness, harboring of grudges. If you lack love, you are lacking a key virtue of your new life in Christ. John says if you don't have love for your fellow believers, you need to question the authenticity of your relationship with God. Ouch. Not my words. We must love each other fervently, especially in the light of the end. That means you've got to forgive some offenses. So be it. 
Love is the solution to many of our problems in the church. And it is the above all virtue. There's the third command. Be hospitable without complaint. I like that first part, not so much the last part. Offer offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. To one another. That means we need to be hospitable to not just those who are lovable or friendly or fun to be like or cool or have lots of money or of the same socioeconomic status. We need to love and be hospitable to all. We are to receive each other, receive them, making them feel welcome, meeting their needs, providing them a place of welcome and acceptance. I'm almost always better at external conformance than at doing the right thing from the heart. If that's you, know that this is added for us. Peter adds, without grumbling. The right motive that welcomes others with a pure heart. So yesterday, I was painting a house And I smelled more pot than I've smelled in my entire adult life. And I thought, that's great. I am painting your house. And you're smoking dope. And boy, the Lord smacked me down yesterday. You know, guests can overstay. Benjamin Franklin said, guests and fish begin to stink after three days. They can abuse their host's welcome, and hospitality can be exasperating, sometimes even expensive. So Peter says, do it, but don't grumble. Love, love opens that door, puts your priorities back in place, and then allows you to use all your means to serve others. You know, anyone loved by Jesus is loved by me. they got to be welcome, regardless of their nationality, age, color, sex, sexual preference, social status, political beliefs. Even if they didn't vote for my guy. My friends, this kind of hospitality is an indictment of Sunday morning Christianity. Where we compartmentalize our lives with each other, from our lives at home, and in our, the rest of our lives. It does not get the, to the truth of deep Christian community. We are called to use everything we have in the service of the King. We are stewards of His grace. You know, my friends, we tend to define hospitality extremely narrowly. We think of it as inviting someone over for a meal. Perfect. Check. Did my hospitality. Ian and Megan, that's not why we did this. It's certainly part of hospitality, but it goes much deeper than this. Hear Jesus' words at the last judgment. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. At this time, 
there were no big church buildings. In fact, there were very few super eights. There were no credit cards. Inns were really scary places to stay. Bad things happened there. So traveling apostles and evangelists had to rely on the church. They stayed in the home of believers for days and weeks. Where did the church meet? They were not welcome in the synagogue. They were persecuted. They did not have the money. So where did they meet? You guessed it. Over at Mark's house. They met in the home. Their hospitality extended even to the meetings of the church. The welcoming and fellowship of believers is a definition of hospitality. The welcome and fellowship of believers and non-believers out of truth and love for Jesus Christ so that they may see Christ more clearly or that they will join us as believers. It's inviting the other into our lives. My daughter Megan has taught me this phrase, the other. The other is a person that makes us uncomfortable. They might be a different class economically. They might be a different race. They might be that guy or or lady standing by the road with that sign that's really dirty. And you can't figure out why they don't get a job. Or that person that we do not approve of the choices, many bad that they've made. I want you to remember that Jesus ate and drank with sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. All wrapped up in one. Those were really the lowest of the low in that society. He sought them out to engage with them. He rarely spent time with the religious hierarchy. And when he did, it was really uncomfortable because he said really rough things to them. He was usually challenging them about their attitude. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So stay focused to pray. Love each other deeply is the greatest virtue. Be hospitable without complaint. And lastly, use the gifts God gave you to serve. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve each other as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very word of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Do you know that you've been given a gift by God? It says it right here. You've got at least one. You have no excuse. And you're supposed to use them. That's not a a suggestion. That's an imperative, that's a command. We have come to believe that ministry is what the pastors do exclusively. It's not right. Every person in the fellowship of believers is to use their gift or gifts to serve one another. How healthy are we as a body? I didn't ask how many people are here or, or the money in the offering. How are we using the gifts that God's given us to serve? In a healthy body of believers, we all know our gifts and we use them for the kingdom. What's the best way to find your gift? Well, you do a spiritual gift analysis, you get some data, you mark it, nope. It's not what it is. It is get up, do it, and try it. 
Listen for the call to engage in the stewardship of grace. Then when you hear it, do it. Engage. Act. There are two gifts mentioned here, speaking and serving, but Peter does not make that an exhaustive list. In fact, serving is a huge catch-all category, right? There are limited variety of spiritual gifts. They are a reflection of the rich and abundant grace of God. And we are incomplete without each believer using their spiritual gifts. I want you to pay attention to this last one. It's a warning to those who speak. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Well, Andrew, you better watch out. This is truly a warning to me when I proclaim the word of God. And it should be to each and every one of us who does it. I should stay close to the very words of God. His words speaking through me. Not my words. But wait. Don't think it's just for someone who stands up here. There's another sense in which this is true. If I am praying, if I am in this communion with God, He will speak through me. This is not just for a pastor or someone who proclaims the Word. It's for all of us. When we give an answer for this hope in us, that answer, those words, are His words. You don't have to be worried that He'll give you those words. Stay close to Him. Stay in the Word. He will give you those words. So friends, these are the four pillars of the stewardship of grace. Be alert and focused to pray effectively. Love each other deeply. Be hospitable without complaint. Use the gifts that God gave you to serve. So that. And the so that is that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm not done yet. This is the goal. That God will be praised through Jesus Christ, that He might have the glory, that He might have the power forever. Now, this is where you come in. Join me for a moment in imagining a picture of New Life Church. Let's imagine us growing in grace. Let's imagine us being stewards of God's grace. So think about this. What's it look like? Everyone prays. Everyone prays. A deep, day by day, moment by moment, intimate communication with our Lord. He's our closest friend. We talk to Him always. We bring every concern, decision, ministry before Him. And we seek as well. Everyone prays. We love each other deeply. Look around at those people across from you and on your left. I mean it. Look at them. You love these people. Love that is deep and earnest for each other. That sometimes it hurts. The love that seeks their best that always forgives, and quickly, without even a second thought. We bear 
each other's burdens. That's what love each other deeply looks like. Hospitality is a way of life. We commune with each other. We live life in close community. We practice worship, work to get, well, ministry together. In the work trailer for Impact Cares yesterday, they had posted 1 John 3.18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That's hospitality. Don't say you love each other, but show it by your actions. That's what it is. And finally, in this new life, church, everyone uses the gifts that God gave him. There's no need to ask, what's my gift? What would God have me do? Everyone steps up. And they use God's gift. Some are evangelists. Some are teachers. Some are ministering comfort. Some are prayer warriors. Some mow the lawn. Some make cookies. But all are used by God. This new life church is not passive consumers, but active, on the field, hiking the ball, Running it forward, as Coach Vern would say, for the kingdom every day and in every way possible. If new life is a place like that, the glory will go to God. Why? Because this stewardship of grace will be done and will flow out of a motive flowing out of our love for God. My friends, this is our goal. We're going to sing this song a little bit later, but I want you to dwell on these words, and this will be also our blessing at the end. My friends, may you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we desire that we would be that place that is alert and focused, where we love each other deeply, where we practice hospitality, and where it all flows into service using the gifts you provided that we might glorify you in everything we do and say. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't remember what's next. <laughs> <laughs>